I'm Lauren. Hello, I'm Sarah. And welcome to Montalino Mama. Hey, everybody. We are back today on Multilingual Mamas with Dr. Veronica Benavides, founder of the Language Preservation Project, who is going to talk to us uh, not only about her expertise as an educator, but also her experiences as both a multilingual child and mother. So thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Benavides. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited to dive into this conversation. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your upbringing, the languages you speak, and how you learn them? Yeah, for sure. Well, first, I love the introduction because I haven't traditionally been introduced as a multilingual child. And I think that's really beautiful because I think we really need to expand our definition of what multilingualism looks like. So I grew up not speaking my heritage language. Um, My parents grew up in South Texas, um, in the Rio Grande Valley, at a time where there were English-only policies in schools. Um, Spanish was their first language, but they got to school and were punished when they spoke Spanish and and really internalized this message of assimilation, of needing to change who you are um, in order to to advance and succeed in life. And so that message was passed on to us. We didn't grow up speaking Spanish, but we were really surrounded by it in our community. We were in a very Latinx community. Um, I only had one grandparent and she only spoke Spanish or only speaks Spanish. She's still alive and strong um, speaking with us today. Hola, abuela. Pues, I don't think she listens to podcasts, but I will, but I will share this with her next time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was surrounded by it and, and my parents would use it when they didn't want us to understand what they were saying. And I think for a long time, like as an adult, I had a deficit based view of my, my multilingualism because I was like, oh, I, you know, I wish I spoke it or my parents forced me to speak it. Um, and it wasn't until I had my child that I realized like, what my parents gave me was better than nothing. And what I pass on to my children will be better than nothing. And that that is a strong foundation for multilingualism and that I did understand Spanish. It was a passive Spanish. So I was passively bilingual and that I had an ear for what accent should sound like. I had an understanding of what sounded wrong or what sounded right. And that all of that was a good foundation for me to be able to continue to pass on the language. And so and so this was the first time I've been introduced as a multilingual child. And, and I love it. And I love the idea that we are moving beyond an idea of perfectionism and gatekeeping around around bilingualism and multilingualism. Yeah, I mean, it's as you say, that deficit framing is sad because if you didn't grow up in a Hispanic household, your Spanish skills would be incredible something you could be so proud of um even just that passive ability um so it sounds like you later took classes or just started speaking with your parents more in Spanish how did that happen yeah um so I think I had a pretty like similar traditional route to a lot of folks who grew up in the U.S. where um you had like Spanish in middle school and Spanish in high school and then I took some Spanish in college but never really grasped the language. Um, And then I even went to Mexico as a Fulbright scholar, and I improved my Spanish a lot when I was there, but still found myself not developing it as much as I would have wanted to, found myself like 
with a lot of internalized shame of like, I look very Mexican and everybody's assuming that I can speak Spanish and then I talk and they realize that I'm not. Um, and so I, I felt like there was always kind of this upper limit on how much I could develop my Spanish and how comfortable I was using it. And it was really kind of the transition into motherhood that marked a change for me because I knew that I wanted to pass on my heritage language to my child. And I realized at that point that learning a heritage language is different than just language learning. Learning a heritage language comes with like reckoning with all of this past and baggage that may come with it. And did I want to pass that on to my son or did I want to pass on liberation to my son? And so at that point, I became a much more playful language learner. I accepted the fact that like we all make mistakes and that's okay. I accepted the fact that connection is a goal in language and not perfection. And it was really at that point that I was able to kind of like break through with the Spanish language and like more confidently speak it and and say that I am a Spanish speaker. Right. Better you mentioned a son. Can you tell us more about your son and your partner? Yeah. I have a son. He is, he just turned five and um, he is trilingual in um, Spanish, Danish, and English. So my partner is Danish and um, I have a daughter who is two and she is just bilingual in um, Spanish and Danish. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny, we were sitting at the, at the dinner table the other day and I told my son, I was, because my daughter really has started developing her bilingualism right around two. And I told my son, I was like, isn't it cool that Sonia can like speak in two languages? And he said, well, yeah, but it's not so cool that I don't speak French yet. When I'm six, I'm going to speak French. And I was like, <laughs> okay, so he's really internalized this mindset of like a language learner. Mm -hmm. Do you understand Danish? I didn't understand Danish at the beginning, like when my husband was speaking Danish solely with my son, I, I really didn't understand anything. Um, and then now just through repetitiveness for five years, I understand like Danish for a five-year-old. Sometimes I think I understand more than I do. And I like try to engage in a conversation with another Danish speaking adult. And I'm like, Oh no, <laughs> it's like, that's like far exceeding my capacity. Yeah. Not everyone wants to talk about, you know, potty training or snacks all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so what are the kind of language practices in your household? What language do you use with your partner, with each of your kids, your mm -hmm. kids between themselves? What does that look like? Um, so we're based in Denmark most of the year. And we, um, I think that's really important to note because Danish is like the community language that we have. And so um, we have a lot of focus on like, where can we have multiple inputs of Spanish and um, frequent inputs of Spanish? And so we have a couple of different strategies. Like first is one parent, one language. Um, for me, that looks different than my husband, who like is it's, Danish is his first and most fluent language. Spanish is not my first or most fluent language. So I use Spanish only with my children, but also they know that it's not my first language. So I communicate to them like sometimes I'm going to have to say something in English, which is my first language. So just allowing myself that space. Um, 
And then we also do, we have a babysitter who helps out and she is a Spanish speaker. We've been very intentional about trying to find like regional Spanish that fits our culture. Um, so she's from Mexico, central Mexico. So that um, is also a good model for our kids. And um, then we go to Spanish classes, which are um, like a lot of the folks who speak Spanish are from Spain. Mm -hmm. So the Spanish classes are uh, Spanish from Spain. So sometimes my children are a little bit confused, but they're also understanding that there are many variations of Spanish and different ways to like engage with the language. And then with English, um, we do a bit more of like a time and place. So every dinner we speak in English all together. Um, and my my husband and I, we speak English to each other. Um, so I think my kids just absorb that and then they have a time to practice when we're when we're at dinner. And then because a lot of my work is U.S. based when we travel to the U.S., then we also have an opportunity to practice more Spanish and, and English. Mm -hmm. And when with your parents, do your kids use Spanish? Yeah. So with my parents, my kids use Spanish. Um and it's interesting through this process, also getting to understand my parents' Spanish. So even though it was their first language, it was never developed. Mm -hmm. um, they then were like in an, the next time they were introduced to Spanish in an academic setting was in high school when they took a Spanish class and were getting like B's and C's and being told that their Spanish was wrong and that that was the wrong word or the wrong thing. Um, so I think that they grew up with a lot of like also self-consciousness around the language um, even though they use it between each other and with their family members. So it's been a little bit of a journey to get my parents to speak consistently to my children in Spanish because they're more comfortable in English mm -hmm. and they're like, they don't have the words for everything that they want to communicate. And so I think that's also been working with my parents, especially my mom, who's, you know, a little bit more um, concerned about that to say like it's okay to say that you don't know or it's okay to like you know look up this word together um, but really trying to like use the language as much as possible yeah I'm right there with you when it comes to that on my husband's side of the family his parents are English speaking too and they speak French and we're asking them to speak French to maximize the French but uh, my mother-in-law struggles sometimes she's like I don't I feel like it's too forced. I want to use English with them. And it just, it, it's it's a fight. You really are trying to protect that input, but they, mm -hmm. you can't force someone who doesn't feel very comfortable speaking right. one language to speak it. So I, I understand the, the struggles when it comes yeah. to that. It's really hard. And then yeah, you, yeah. mm -hmm. you say what languages your kids speak to each other if they have a consistent pattern yet? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I was really concerned about this because um, we're growing up in the community context where Danish is dominant. And I was like, oh, they're going to just speak Danish to each other. Um, and really, probably my second child is not going to be as fluent in Spanish as my first, which is a pattern that I've seen definitely like, you know, my we, we're a family of four kids. My oldest sister was the one that had the most Spanish. Um, and then it kind of like dwindled from there. And so I think for me, I did a lot of like groundwork with my son. A lot of our language learning is grounded in like connection and him understanding the importance of it. So I think he's bought in on that. And I'm also framing him as my helper. Like Sonia doesn't get to practice Spanish as much. Um, 
with as many people. So it's really important that you help me, you know, help her learn to learn another language. He's really proud of being multilingual. And so I think he feels comfortable in, in all of his languages and, and is comfortable talking to his sister in the language. So they speak in, I thought it was just with me that they spoke in Spanish to each other because my son is intentional about like speaking in Spanish to her when, when we're all together. But I was recently away for a work trip and my husband shared that like Anton would still speak to Sonia in Spanish, like even when I wasn't there. So um, I think that's really nice. And and he's at a point where I think he's so confident in his, in his languages that he just moves pretty fluidly between them. That's so great. It sounds like you've already given them so much just in yeah. terms of confidence. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's just so important. I, I um, <laughs> I'm like, because it's not like my most fluent or, you know, strongest language. And, and I think being in academia and, and having been in school for a long time in English, you can always like compare to say like, oh, I wish my Spanish was as strong as my English. And um, I think for me, just releasing it and saying like, I'm giving him strong foundations for how to communicate in another language. And that's enough. And when he's older, he can deepen it himself and like not putting so much pressure on me to be like the transmitter of, of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've kind of talked about this question, but um, if there's anything you wanted to add, we were going to ask um, how it feels to raise your children in a language that isn't your dominant language. And um, just if there's any other specific challenges or emotions that go along with that, that you wanted to mention. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so many <laughs> emotions and challenges that come along with it. Um, as I mentioned, being a heritage language speaker who like didn't grow up speaking her language and then reclaimed it, like there's so many moments where I think I would just amplify the negative or like amplify what kind of reinforced my fears when I spoke in Spanish. So for example, when I moved to Mexico, there were so many people that were like welcoming and that like we're supportive of me speaking in Spanish. And then there was just this one incident where a roommate of mine who was wonderful and invited me to her family vacations, like went with her family, was talking to her um, dad. And he said in Spanish, like, stop talking in that gringa accent. And I was like, um, like, I don't like, that's just how I'm talking. Like, I don't know how to stop talking like that. And so I just like, stop talking right like that's my reaction is to be fearful to be mute to to like think that everybody is judging me Mm -hmm. and I think that that's what I carried for a long time even when I had my son he was born in New York Uh, we were there for a year and a half and I was like super verbal in the home trying to create a language rich environment and speaking to him in Spanish and then I went out in public and I'm like super silent right because what if that person speaks Spanish and what if that person speaks Spanish and they hear me speaking Spanish and they're thinking like, what is this crazy lady doing speaking Spanish with that accent? It's not her first language or she said that word wrong or she conjugated that verb wrong. And so I had a lot of like mental blockage and and fear around that. Um, And it, it took a mental shift to, to really say like accents are, are a good thing. Accents are a sign of bravery mistakes are normal languages for communication not perfection and really like understanding that 
if I held this fear and shame around the language, then that was going to be passed on to my children. And if I wanted my children to have a positive relationship with the language and to own it, that I needed to model that for them. Um, and so I think that that was like one of the major barriers that I had to work through. And also why I started the Language Preservation Project, because I looked for so many resources on like raising a child if it's not your native language. And there were a lot of great resources, but not from heritage Spanish speakers. And I'm like, it's different. It's different because it's not just because you feel limited in the language, but it's also different because it comes with all of this baggage and this history and the shame that requires healing, um, which is why we wanted to create something different to to help shift the narrative and to help people feel and know that it's possible. I think that the fact that your children speak Spanish with each other is a testament to like how good like you've worked to overcome this and you really shifted your mentality and try to be that positive model for your children. So I wanted to applaud you for that because I, I can't imagine how hard that can be. And also kind of shifting again to your children, what would you say um, is your children's proficiency in each of the languages that they are exposed to right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we we had the opportunity to go to Mexico for three months um, because uh, we my husband was on paternity leave and I could work remotely. And the first thing I did was took my son to a speech pathologist because I was like, I still had this fear, like, am I effing my kid up? Like, am I like what like what is his proficiency really? Like, okay, he can communicate with me and with my family, but like, is he really fluent in the language? Um, and I took him there. Um, and he was three and a half, almost four at that time. And the speech pathologist was like, great. He has a really expansive vocabulary. He's like totally on par for his like age in this language. And it's like, it was like the proudest moment in my life. Aww. I was like, I did it. And I didn't like mess my child up and, and all of this stuff. And I think um, that was that I think is really important to share because like you don't need to be fully fluent or like feel that you're completely, you know, perfect in the language in order to pass it on to your, your child. There are so many different ways to give the gift of multilingualism and you might just need different strategies and tools. Mm -hmm. Like you might just need, like I said, we have multiple like forms of input and output and exposure to really help get our children there. And so I think, you know, my son has continued to develop it and I think it's it's constantly like effort and intention because his Danish will always be like stronger as long as we're in this context. But I but I've asked him, I was like, do you do you ever feel like more comfortable in Danish than in Spanish? And he's like, no, no, like, you know, it's not like a thing to him. He's just really he feels comfortable in both of those languages. English is not his strongest, um, but he still can communicate in it. And I think, you know, we're not worried about that. That will come. Mm -hmm. And my daughter is like two <laughs> and she's, <laughs> she's um, her language is right where it should be for a two-year-old. She um, uses the right language for the right person. She knows mm -hmm. who speaks, you know, Spanish and who speaks Danish and she uses those languages appropriately. Yeah. English, English is inevitable, I guess. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, I asked my husband, I was like, because, you know, I'm on this, I, I'm still a learner with Spanish. And so I, I asked him, I was like, when, when do you remember, like, because he's so fluent in English, when do you remember unlocking that language and like being completely fluent? And he's like, I don't remember. And I got so mad with him. I was like, what do you mean you don't remember? And he's just like, we're just like, we're just a bilingual country. Like it's bilingualism is just the way that we do it here. And when it's from such a young age, and his parents don't speak English very well, when it's from such a young age, institutionally, like across the, 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 and culturally, then it just happens. And I think living in Denmark has given me the perspective that bilingualism is, is totally um, reachable. In the US, we sometimes think that it's like such a hard thing to do. Um, but especially when you create the conditions in early childhood, that it's like, something that's a given like kids don't remember like learning the language because it's just something that happens right for sure um so now can you go back to the um language preservation project that you mentioned earlier and tell us a little bit about um what it's all about and how you came up with the idea yeah um so i came up with the idea um after I had my second child and had like continued and committed to this um, journey of, of raising children and their, with their connection to their heritage language. And um, it really started off with just like wanting, wanting to create a community um, around this, but there was a lot of interest. Um, a lot of folks saying like, that's my story too. Um, that's also like how I feel and what I'm trying to do. And so we started to formalize it and create um, two of our like kind of core things that we do. One is the language preservation teaching collective and one is the language preservation family collective. And these are cohort based experiences across six or 12 months where we support teachers and families in learning how to cultivate and protect heritage languages. And um, we are very intentional about doing it across home and school because our kind of disconnect from our heritage languages happened as a result of institutional policies. Um, it happened because of English only policies. It happened because of Native, Native American boarding schools. It happened because of, you know, the lack of bilingual programming in schools. And so there needs to be healing in our school environment and mindset and practice shifts in our school environment, but also generations of that have bled into the way that we operate as families. So we also need to work on the family front in terms of shifting our mindsets and our practices. And that's why we work with both of those, um, those communities. Are you focused on the U.S. specifically or Spanish specifically, or is it anyone anywhere? Yeah, um, so we are in the U.S. Um, and we've worked kind of our like flagship uh, or our pilot offerings. We're just a year old. We're a baby organization. Um, but our pilot programming happened in um, Denver, Colorado and Bonito, Colorado and Asheville, North Carolina. And we're going to expand to Houston next year. And um, yeah, we work with zero to eight. So early childhood range. And uh, we've had a range of folks participate with different languages like Korean, Mandarin, Spanish, um, Mayan, but 
we have a curriculum that accompanies our work as well. That's a child facing curriculum. And that's just in Spanish for now. So a lot of our resources can be applied to any heritage language, but like the curriculum and, and resources we have that can be used directly with kids are just in Spanish because our small team of like two full-time employees and like for um, consultants, like we speak Spanish, mm -hmm. but hopefully as we grow, we'll be able to expand to other heritage languages. Mm -hmm. You can have your kids work on the, the Danish side of things. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you've touched on this. Perhaps we can delete this in the future <laughs> if it's not something you've discussed. I don't think you did. But why does this project, how did it come about? And why is it important to you? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, again, why it came about was the like experiences as a mother looking for resources and really kind of experiencing that mindset shift and, and feeling like heritage language learning and teaching and parenting is different than like just your, you know, traditional bilingual education. And so really feeling that there needed to be that perspective in the world. And why is it important to me? It's important to me because this is what I wish was in place for my parents. This is what I wish was in place for me. This is what I wish for my children and their children, for them to know that who they are and where they come from is enough, is good, and doesn't need to change. Um, and so that's ultimately what we what we hope for all kids. And when we were just starting and just had an idea, like I, you know, put a little workshop out into the world and it was filled with all of my friends and my mom who showed up, like they were the folks that showed up. Um, and my mom at the end of the workshop said like, this is so great what you're doing. And if I had this as a parent, like when y'all were young, I would have been able to raise you with your heritage language. And that was, that was just huge to me. And that's, I think what I hope and what we're doing is that folks feel that it's possible and that they also have the tools to do it. How would you describe your goals if you have goals for your children, for their multilingualism and multiculturalism? What, how do you yeah. imagine success looking? Yeah, I have like one really big, big goal and I try not to make it clearer than that. Like, obviously I'm, I'm working with them on like letter recognition and writing and reading. And I hope all of that, but really the goal, the big goal that I want is that they have a strong relationship to the language and the culture, that they have a positive relationship to the language and the culture because multilingual parenting, like any aspect of parenting can't be forced. Like you can raise your kid with the dreams that they'll like play the violin and be in the orchestra but really the only thing you can do is create a container and it's up to your children to decide what they want for themselves. And so that's really how I try to approach this of not like a sense of like ownership or obsession about like, you know, what level they'll be or what, you know, fluency or if they can read and write in the language, but mostly that they feel a positive relationship to the language that they feel a sense of understanding about the importance and, and connection to who they are and where they come from. That seems so would you say that working towards this goal and 
has helped you in your own parenting? I mean, I'm assuming you this project kind of like aligns with your your goals, your personal objectives for your children and everything. I have a question beyond that. Do you feel like working with these goals in mind make you obsessed sometimes with your own children or the dynamics you have at home and with what you want to achieve? Because we've talked, Lauren and I have talked about the fact that we're linguists and our children make mistakes all the time. We're pretty laid back about it, right? We're just I'm like, not, oh, he's at the stage, which is just like, you know, regularizing all the regular verbs is fine. Mm-hmm. But I feel like sometimes knowing so much can be counterproductive and you kind of mm-hmm. start obsessing. Has this happened to you with this project that is so dear to you and you have, like you said, so much emotional baggage attached to it? <laughs> um, I don't, I think that's a good, when you said obsessing, I thought about like the other day, my son was trying to like mix Play-Doh colors as he was, you know, uh-huh. putting them away. And no, I'm like, no, we have to separate that. the, Never. especially yeah. you can mix them while you're playing, but when you're, you know, putting them away, you have to separate <laughs> them. And he was like really upset about that. Um, <laughs> And, and I was like, no, I don't know that I obsess about language. I obsess about like Plato storage. Um, <laughs> um, but I think we I all think, do. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I, I'm very intentional. I think you have to be intentional about it. And so, um, you know, we only have, you know, exposure to, to media in Spanish because it's, a, it's our, you know, minority language. And I try to like, expose them to as much books as possible. But anytime I feel this friction of like a lack of interest, or maybe I'm forcing it, I release it because I don't ever want them to feel like this is a chore or this is something that's extra and not just integrated into a part of their life. And so there is an intentionality around it, but I think because of my knowledge of like how learning happens and how it's so deeply tied to motivation um, and how it's blocked so much by shame or fear, I'm very cognizant of those environments that I'm creating for my, for my kids. Mm -hmm. Reflecting back a little bit more on your childhood, what do you specifically do you wish would have been different for you, for your parents for your society? Yeah, great question. Um, I wish my parents were advised to speak Spanish to us at home, that they were advised the opposite by schools and, and pediatricians. I wish there was bilingual programming. I wish schools saw me as emergent multilingual or multilingual as you introduced me um, and saw the strengths and cultivated those. And I think, you know, for society in the U.S., we'd have a much more multilingual country. Like the U.S. is at most 20% bilingual population and the global population is about 60% bilingual, multilingual. And so I think there's really a a question there to be had of like, why is that the case? Um, And shifting you know, individually, I think there's a lot of agency in what we can do, but also shifting the conversation to what needs to change in our institutions in order to support multilingualism for for children. That's a great answer, for sure. Um, You talked about you having um, a nanny that was Spanish speaking, coming from Central Mexico as well. Are there any other resources uh, for you in the community up in where you are? for Spanish 
or English, perhaps? Mm -hmm. yeah. Great question. Um, for Spanish, are there any other? Well, so we have the the Spanish class, which is like the only one in Copenhagen. There's one <laughs> Spanish class for kids, um, and we we found a few families that have children who are Anton's age who speak Spanish. So we try to like do playdates around that and really normalize like the language outside of just me and Anton when it can be the like I see me and Anton because we're the most verbal but me Anton and Sonia um when it's a minority language it can maybe sometimes feels like it falls all on you mm -hmm. as the like heritage language speaker of that language and so I think it's really important to show that like this is a language that is used in multiple spaces by multiple people and for us, we're really fortunate to be able to travel. Um, so we are intentional about traveling places and, and like narrating um, the different use of language. And, and when we go to different, you know, Spanish speaking countries, the different variations and really encouraging um, our children to, to use that language with the folks that live there as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that everything where you're at is in European Spanish, Peninsular Spanish, because for us here, it's the opposite. We, we're trying to pass down Peninsular Spanish, but everything around mm -hmm. us is in, you know, Mexican or Latin American mm -hmm. Spanish, at least. So yeah, we'll have to do a book exchange one day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My, we were just talking the other day that my daughter really doesn't ever use vosotros yet. She always uses mm -hmm. ustedes. Just mm -hmm. um. What has been the most surprising thing to you about raising multilingual children? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. There's been so many surprises. I'm trying to pin down one, like the most <laughs> surprising thing. Take your time. Um, I think even two or three. Yeah, two or three. Yeah, I think I didn't expect how hard it was going to be. And not the fact that it wasn't like my... Um, native language but like the emotional like experience of uh, of digging back into this language and and passing it on um i remember when i like first started speaking to my son like exclusively in spanish i i was just looking for some type of validation like someone to tell me that like i was doing something right because i had never encountered a person who like lost their heritage language regained it and then wanted to pass it on even though that they weren't you know, fully perfect in the language. And so I asked my mom, I was like, what do you, what do you think? Like, it, it felt like it was around the year two or two and a half where, you know, children are becoming very verbal, their vocabulary is exploding. And I, I told her, I think that this is a critical moment where I need to like choose if I'm going to continue in Spanish or if I'm going to shift to English because I don't want to shift later. And she looked at me and she's like, it seems really hard to speak to him in English. And my heart broke because I was like, this is my mom who like cheers me on for everything, who thought that I could be an Olympic swimmer when I was like the most mediocre, <laughs> like fourth place finish on the swim team. And she's like, you know, you should just speak to him in, in English. And I now understand where that came from. But I think, I think it was just, for me, what was surprising was the, you know, lack of examples of, of what had been done within our Latinx community. I actually turned a lot to like 
indigenous communities, especially what had been happening in Hawaii and language revitalization as like an example of like, this is possible and, and there is a path to do this. Um, and so I think, yeah, I didn't expect to go down this path. I was just like, I'm just going to speak to my kid in Spanish. And, and I thought it would be that easy. Um, and it really, it really wasn't. And it required a lot of support and community. It's hard to, but when it's not clear yet, whether your child is going to sound native-like in the language, but then once yeah. they get a little bit older and you can tell like, wow, they're, they're really fluent in this language, then yeah. it, it feels a little bit better. Like you have some sort of validation. Yeah. yeah. And it's, a, it's already so hard to be a mother. Right. Yeah, adding mm-hmm. this new layer of wait, let me pass on to you my culture, my language, all the planning exactly. that is involved in yeah. that. Like it sounds like you've moved around a lot as well, like I did last mm-hmm. year, and it's exhausting. You just mm-hmm. kind of like do it because you know it's the best thing you can do for your family, but then you don't have sometimes your family to back you up or understand mm-hmm. why it's so important to you. So again, I applaud you for that because it's just not easy. <laughs> it's just not easy, yeah. and not everybody gets yeah. it. Yeah. Intentionality behind everything. Exactly. Exactly. It's not easy. And like I say to my son, like we can do hard things like this is if this means that like I'm putting less effort in some other part of my life, then that's also okay because this is where I've chosen to to um, to put our my energy as a parent. And I think um I don't know if if y'all connected with or heard of Deandra Morse from Bilingual Playdate. Yeah. We have an interview with her in like next week or two weeks. Yeah. Uh, That's going to be a great interview. Um, We had her on our podcast and she equated like, you know, bilingual parenting as uh, playing a sport, you know, how like families like get really into sport and they like make sure they go to practice and they show up at the meets and they do all those things. And like, bilingual parenting is your sport that you're that you're choosing and I felt like that analogy just really perfectly captures what it is to be a bilingual parent because you can put all of this effort and energy into that sport as well and then your child at like 12 is like no I don't want to do that anymore (laughs) that's okay like that's a part of what what the journey is like yeah, to, to kind of conclude, I wanted to ask, what are some tips or resources that you want to share with our listeners, and particularly those that would fit your profile? You know, there's mm-hmm. heritage speakers that didn't have the opportunity to acquire that language to the extent they wanted to, and they're trying, you know, to connect again, to relearn it, and hopefully pass it on to their children. What yeah. can you tell them? I would tell them that they are enough just as they are. And in the ways that they show up is is enough for their children. Um, what they're the efforts that they're doing in terms of passing on heritage and culture to their children are are really even if in the moment it doesn't feel like their kids are going to appreciate it that they will in the long run. Um, and I would say that you have community. Like there's a full like you know growing group of folks who are reconnecting to their language, reconnecting to their culture, and understanding and accepting that that looks different for every family and every person. Um, and so so that's what I would I would say and kick the kick the judgment and the shame to the side because that that doesn't serve us. So we'll just leave it leave it over there. All right. 
Well, that seems yeah. like a pretty good place to leave it, but we'll be back soon with uh, another interview, maybe with uh, Deandra. Um, so until <laughs> then, hasta luego. Ciao. Hasta luego. Gracias. If you ever have questions about us or questions about the podcast, go to home and our website at multilingualmamaspodcast.com and click on the link for questions. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay tuned for more episodes of Multilingual Mamas.